You're listening to a sermon from Leewood Baptist Church. For more information about us, visit our website at leewoodbaptist.com. We are right in the middle of a series going through the book of 1 John called Authentic. We as a faith family are going through this book and asking ourselves, am I an authentic believer in Jesus Christ? By my life, can I show that I am a true follower of Jesus Christ? We've seen consistently throughout this book some evidences of true, authentic faith in Christ. John wrote this book for those, uh, he wrote the, the, the book of 1 John for those who are in the church, those who call themselves believers, because what had happened, and we're going to talk about this uh, a little, in a little bit more detail here in just a minute, false teachers had infiltrated the early church and had begun to spread bad doctrine, bad theology, bad teaching about Jesus. And because of that bad teaching and doctrine in the church, it caused many to begin to doubt whether or not they were really in the faith. And so John calls the church here in his book of 1 John to examine ourselves to find if we are truly in the faith. We've posed this question and this idea every week and will continue to do so that we can go to church for decades upon decades and be just as lost and unsaved as someone who never stepped in church. Going to church, being involved in the church, does not save us. In fact, the church can be one of the most spiritually dangerous places for us to be because we can begin to allow the thought and and belief into our hearts and our minds that because I go to church, therefore I'm a pretty good person. Because I serve in the church, therefore I'm a pretty good person. Because I give to the church, I am a good person, and therefore I am I have a relationship with God. And we've seen throughout Scripture, even in Matthew, Jesus telling his disciples that there will be many that will stand before him, and they will say, we've prophesied in your name, means we taught. We've performed miracles. We've done all kinds of good works in your name. And what does Jesus tell in the Gospel of Matthew, he tells his disciples, he said, on that day I will tell them, depart from me, I never knew you. In the book of James, James even wrote, and he says that even, the, that he says, you believe that God is one good, but even the demons believe. So just believing in God and being religious doesn't save us. And so when we look at that reality that every one of us are confronted with, we need to examine our lives and our hearts to ask ourselves, do I really believe Christ? Do I have evidence of saving faith in my life? Do I know the gospel? Has the gospel, not, do not, not, not just do I know the gospel, but has the gospel really changed my life? 
And so as we've looked at these evidence, we've seen that an authentic Christian is someone that's going to feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit over sin, that the believer through saving faith, the, the Holy Spirit is then enters and dwells in the believer. And so holy God lives inside the Christian. And so with holy God living inside of a believer, a believer is not going to be able to sin and be happy. There's going, to be mis- there's going to be misery in sin. There's going to be conviction. There's going to be conflict in our personal lives when we sin because the Holy Spirit is not going to allow us to live in that way. And so an evidence of being an authentic, true Christian is someone that feels conviction, not guilt, that's different, but conviction over sin in their lives. We saw further into chapter 1, John wrote, he says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And so we saw that an authentic Christian is someone that is going to be transparent about their sin. They're not going to put on a facade about that everything is good in their lives, but they're going to be transparent about their brokenness and their sin. Another evidence that John has given us so far is that an authentic Christian is obedient to God. There's going to be a natural obedience. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago that we as believers are, as the Bible describes in Ephesians 5, in a marriage with Christ. Well, just like a married couple that is going to, they're going to start taking on each other's tendencies and traits. And so as in a marriage, a husband and a wife are going to become more and more like each other. In a marriage of Christ, if we are in a marriage with Christ, we are going to become progressively more and more like Jesus Christ. That's called sanctification. And so a sign and evidence of a true, authentic Christian is someone that can look back at their life from salvation and see progress of becoming more like Jesus. Now, we'll never be fully like Jesus here on this earth, but there's going to be a progression, a more and a, a development of becoming more like Jesus. We've also seen that an authentic Christian is going to have a natural love for the church. They are going to love their brother and sister in Christ, and they're going to understand that love is based out of an understanding and belief that they, that they are in the same standing, that we are sinners, that we are broken, and because of Christ, we are one in the church. And so that's going to pour out a natural love. And then last week, we talked about and saw that a true, an evidence of a true believer is someone that does not love the world. And we're not talking about the globe or the people of the world, but that worldly system that is against God. That that, that, that the true believer is not going to love the worldly system that is against God, and they are not going to love the things of the world. There's not going to be the pride of possessions. And we talked about how dangerous that is for us as Americans, because many of us, many, it's easy for us to have an idea of the gospel that is American and not biblical. And so we got to make sure that we are truly understanding what the Bible says about saving faith. Well, this morning we're going to talk more about false doctrine that creeps into the church. So if you have your Bible, there's a Bible in the pew in front of you. If you don't own one, that is our church's gift to you, and we would love for you to take that with you. Those Bibles are meant to be given away. But we're going to start here in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 18. Look at it with me. It says this, Children, it is the last hour. 
And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. By this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. However, they went out so that it might be made clear that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy Spirit, and all of you know the truth. I have not written to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do not know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar if not the one who denies Jesus is the Christ? This one is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. He who confesses the Son has the Father as well. If you go into any Christian bookstore or if you go into Barnes & Noble, which of course bookstores are becoming more and more obsolete thanks to Amazon and online shopping, But if you were to go into a Christian bookstore like Mardell's or Lifeway, or you're going to go into the religious section of Barnes & Noble, or if you're a writer and you want to make a lot of money, this is what I would encourage you to do. Write about end times. You go into a Christian bookstore. I mean, there is everyone, it seems like, has a book out about the end times, right? You go there and you've got all kinds of people that you know, may or may not be well-meaning, but that sells books. People love end times. You remember uh, back in the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, the, the uh, Left Behind series and all of that. Like We are fascinated by end times. And so what we can do is we come approach 1 John uh, chapter 2 here towards the end to the, the, the middle to the end of this chapter, and we hear Antichrist, and we immediately think they're talking about end times here. That's not what this is about at all, okay? And let me just say this about study of end times and eschatology and all kinds of those good things. It can be fun to speculate. It can be fun to uh, debate even But let me just tell you how it ends. God wins. So the end of Revelation, the end of the Bible, is not a map to help us figure out when and who and how and all of these things that are going to happen at the end times. The point of the book of Revelation is that King Jesus is coming back to redeem the world. So when it comes back to our eschatology, King Jesus comes back and he's going to establish his kingdom and we as the church are going to be with him as his bridegroom. How, if, and when it happens really doesn't matter. We can spend a lot of money on books and studies and watch a lot of people on TV, but let me just tell you, King Jesus wins. I can tell you what's going to happen in the Super Bowl tonight. The Rams are going to get ahead, and Tom Brady's going to come back and lead the Patriots back. It's what happens. And so I can tell you that's what's going to happen, and I can tell you what's going to happen at the end times. Jesus comes back. He wins. He's our king, and we're going to spend all of eternity with him. How, if, or when doesn't matter. So, folks, let me tell you this section is not about end times. Don't get bogged down with end times teaching. It's fun. It's, it's in, it's, it can be important. But just know that we as the church, we're going to be redeemed to Jesus, and he's going to be our king. 
But what this is talking about is that false teaching that crept into the church of the early church. The early church, many false teachers crept in and they denied the resurrection. They denied the deity of Christ. And so these believers are here and they're hearing this and they're hearing this false doctrine and many are walking away from the faith. And John writes, he says, they went out, verse 19, he says, they went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. One thing we have to understand today as the church is that false doctrine just 2,000 years ago, just just like false doctrine can creep in 2,000 years ago, it's creeping into the church today. There are those that deny that Scripture is completely true. They deny the inerrancy of Scripture. That's a lie from Satan. They, they try to use Scripture to discredit. There are those right now that are denying the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Now, to you, that might not mean anything, but basically, there's teaching creeping into even our evangelical circles that we should not teach the substitutionary atonement of Christ. You say, Adam, what is that? That means that Jesus was our substitute on the cross. That Jesus did not need to die to save us. And that we should stop teaching the substitutionary atonement of Christ because then it makes God a wrathful God, that if God placed his, the God the Father placed his wrath of sin upon the Son, then that's a form of divine child abuse. So we've got to quit teaching that. Well, folks, that teaching is in direct contradiction of the Trinity, because if we understand the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are all equally God. So Jesus as God on the cross did not, it was not an act of divine child abuse because Jesus, as God, took his own wrath upon sin, upon himself. So that was not an act of divine child abuse. That was an act of divine love. So to deny the substitutionary atonement of Christ is to deny the Trinity. There is teaching creeping into our churches that if I am good enough, if I do a good, if I if I'm good enough, if I read my Bible enough, if I pray enough, if I go to enough to enough Bible studies, if I wear the right clothes and say the right things, therefore I'm right with God. And that is a false doctrine. That's called legalism. Because as we understand the gospel, is that we cannot, we can't do anything to receive favor from God, and we can't do anything to lose favor with God. It's not based upon what we do. It's based upon what Christ does. And so because of false doctrine creeping into the church, many Christians are leaving the church. There's many who leave that they don't even belong to us because of false teaching. That's why it is so important for us to know and understand the gospel. Because if we don't know it, and we don't understand it, and we don't believe it, and we don't live it out, there is much at stake. Eternity is at stake. 
And that's why John would write in verse 21, look at it. He says, I have not written to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it. And because no lie comes from the truth. He says, verse 22, who is the liar if not the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? The one, this one is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. And so John is saying the Antichrist is not a person, it's many Antichrists. Anyone that spreads false teaching about Christ is an Antichrist. And he goes on to say, verse 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. He who confesses the Son has the Father as well. And may we, as God's covenant people of the church, may we embrace and know truth and know doctrine because eternity is at stake. Let's keep going. Look at verse 24. What you have heard from the beginning is to remain in you. If what you have heard from the beginning remains in you, then you will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He Himself made to us, eternal life. I have written these things to you, concern, to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing you receive from Him remains in you. You don't need anyone to teach you. Instead, His anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie. Just as it has, it has taught you, remain in Him. So now, little children, remain in Him so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know this as well. Everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Whenever we read scripture, if you hopefully as you read scripture on your own and you see something that is repeated, you need to circle it, underline it, highlight it because that means that through the inspiration of God, the writer is trying to get something across to us. So here in verses 24 through 25, we, we see the phrase remain in. It's mentioned five times. So there's a point that's trying to be get, gotten across. John, through the inspiration of God, is saying, what you have heard from the beginning is to remain in you. What you have heard from the beginning remains in you. He says, as for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you. Then he says, just as it has taught you, remain in him. He says, little children, remain in him so that when he, reappear, when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. So he says over and over to remain in. So what does that mean? This is a command that we are going to be, we need to remain in. We need to abide in. We need to stay in. So why in the world, after talking about false teachers and the Antichrist and bad doctrine, John goes back to remain in him, abide in him. 
Because here's the reality for the life of the believer. There is going to be darts and doubts and lies thrown out at us. And we, it's going to be easy for us to have our faith shaken. Have you ever gone through something, maybe as a loss of a loved one, a loss of a relationship, something that has happened in your life that has shaken your faith? Has there anyone that's gone through that? That's normal. That happens. There are going to be things that can come up that shakes our faith. And John reminds us to remain in him, to go back to that foundation, that truth that we know. Jesus even told his disciples this. So turn over to the Gospel of John chapter 15. Jesus even used the same exact phrasing. In fact, John, who wrote the Gospel of John, also was basically repeating himself here in 1 John, because turn over to John chapter 15. Jesus has brought his disciples around him. He's getting ready to do, be crucified, of course, so we know after his crucifixion, the resurrection, and then his ascension into heaven. And so Jesus is getting ready to leave his disciples to a mission and ministry that he has given him to go and make disciples of all nations and establish his church. But at the crucifixion of Christ, we know that the disciples' faith was shaken, wasn't it? Because from the garden, when they come to capture Jesus, what did the disciples do? They ran. They ran and they hid. In fact, there was only one disciple present at the crucifixion of Christ, and that was John. The other's disciples, one had completely betrayed Jesus and committed suicide over it. That was Judas. And the other ten ran. They ran scared. Their faith was shaken. Even some of his disciples even couldn't believe that his resurrection had even happened. Before all this takes place, Jesus says here in John chapter 15, look at verse 1. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. Every branch in, him, in me that does not produce fruit, he removes. And he prunes every tree that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit, because you can do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you remain in me, my words remain in you. Ask whatever you want, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, I, also, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, 
you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. You see the parallel and the correlation to 1 John chapter 2? Jesus says here, he says, if you remain in me, verse 7, in my words remain in you. I'm sorry, go up to verse, yeah, verse 7. Ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. And he says, my Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. So when Jesus talks about remaining in him and John repeats that and says, remain in him in 1 John chapter 2, he's talking about the fruit that a disciple and follower and believer in Jesus Christ that they produce. That an authentic believer in Jesus Christ is going to produce fruit. There's going to be evidence in their life that they will produce fruit. And Jesus says here in verse 4, and he says, Remain in me and I in you, just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. Then he goes on to say that if anyone does not remain in me, verse 6, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them, they throw them into the fire, and they are burned. And so here's a picture of salvation. There are many branches that believe that they are in Christ, that they abide in Christ, that they remain in Christ, but there is no fruit there. And what does Jesus say is going to happen? That those branches will be cut off, they will be gathered together, and they will be burned. And so faith, family, an authentic believer, an authentic Christian in Jesus Christ is going to be able to produce fruit. But we need to understand something when it comes to producing fruit and proving that we are his disciples. Because when we read these verses, we can understand them, misunderstand them. Because so often when we read and we th- talk about abiding in Christ and remaining in Him, we don't understand our position with God because of what Jesus has done. We can read this and hear Jesus say that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. And we think, we, we read this and we can understand it as, if I obey Christ, then I am remaining in His love. But that's not what Jesus has said. Jesus said, remain in my love, then you obey my commands. There's a difference. It's not obey my commands and then you'll love me. And that's how we live sometimes, right? If I obey, if I produce fruit, if I'm good enough, then I love Christ. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, love me, abide in me, and then you will obey. See, there's a big danger in getting this backwards because if we live with a mindset of I have to obey Jesus to abide in his love, then the problem with that idea is then Christianity and following Jesus, it's going to be enslaving and honestly, it's going to be suffocating. To live with this idea of remaining in Christ's love is by obeying him, then that is suffocating. Following Jesus, being a Christian, being a believer and authentic Christian of Jesus is not doing. It's being. It's abiding. It's remaining. 
It's not busyness. It's not a list of things to do so we can earn some kind of brownie points with God. The Christian faith is not do and you receive approval. It's not obey Jesus and you receive love. The Christian faith is love. Therefore, will do. So how does this work? As we explore and search our hearts as to whether or not we are authentic followers of Jesus, how does this work? See, if we are called, what we are called to do as followers of Jesus is to work on and grow in my love for Jesus. And then in return, that will affect our disobedience. We need to work on our love for Jesus, and then our actions will fall into place. Sometimes as Christians, what do we do? We work on our disobedience. If I would just stop getting angry, if I would just stop lying, if I would just stop lusting, if I would just stop doing any number of things, then... I will love Jesus. No, we have that backwards. Because when we sin, sin is simply loving something else more than Jesus. And so when we grow in our love for Jesus, then the natural byproduct of this is that we obey. And so what we have to understand is that loving Jesus does not come naturally to us as human beings. We are not born into this world naturally loving Jesus. Don't let anyone tell you that. Because we are born into this world loving ourselves more than Jesus. Even as a baby cries, a baby is saying what? I'm tired. I'm hungry. Babies are some of the most narcissistic people on the planet. It's all about them. And so even as babies, we are born into this world where it's all about us. It's all about me. Take care of me. And then as we grow up, that narcissism that we're all born with just manifests itself out differently. It's all about what I want in my life and when I want it. It's all about my preferences and my desires and what I need right now. And what that is, that is a simple idolatry in our lives. We are all born with idolatry, and the person we're worshiping is ourselves. So we are not born with this natural love for Jesus. It takes a miracle of God in our hearts and lives for us to love Jesus. It takes a miracle. We're not capable of doing it. Even as Paul said in Ephesians 2, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead things don't do anything. So we're not capable of loving Jesus. It takes a miracle. It's called regeneration, resurrection. We need to be resurrected just as Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead and later he rose from, Jesus rose from the dead. We need that same resurrection in our lives to love Jesus. And so once we receive that ability to love Jesus, we must remain in that love and we must grow in that love. So because as we grow in that love with Jesus, we die to ourselves and we die to our own wants, needs, desires, and preferences. It's no longer about us as Christians. It's all about Jesus. 
And so what this means personally then is if we're going to remain as authentic believers in Jesus Christ, if we're going to remain in his love, is that we have to fill our lives with what stirs up our love and affection for Christ rather than filling our lives with things that siphon off our love and affection for Christ. See, every one of us are in a war right now. We are in a war. It's a war of love. Am I going to love myself or am I going to love Jesus? And to abide and remain in Jesus is to surround and fill our lives with those things that stir up our love and affections and run from those things that siphon off our love and affection for Christ. And so a believer through the Holy Spirit is going to have that capability. Someone that is not an authentic follower and believer in Jesus Christ is not going to have that capability because they haven't been regenerated. And so as we examine our lives and study our lives and and take an account and take stock into our lives as whether or not we are true, authentic, authentic followers of Christ, we need to begin to discover what stirs up our love. What causes us to love? Is it ourselves and the things of the world, or is it Jesus? I was thinking about this this week, doing a lot of thinking. I mean, preaching this is an intimidating thing. And examining my own life and, and taking inventory of my own life, and I started thinking about how do I know when I love something? If I'm supposed to love Christ and abide and remain in Christ, how do I know that I love something? And after thinking it through, when we love something, we get excited about it, right? I mean, have you ever been around those grandparents? And I know I'm looking at some right now. How is your family? And they don't talk about their husband, their wife, or their kids. What they talk about? Their grandkids, Well, let me tell you about my grandkids. Let me tell you about my great-grandkids. Why do grandparents get so hyper about their grandkids? Because they love them. They love their grandkids. They get excited about their grandkids. So in thinking about that, and when we talk about remaining in Christ, and we're in this war for love, what excites me? What excites us? And so as we examine our spiritual lives and we take inventory of that and we ask ourselves, am I I an authentic follower of Christ? We have to ask ourselves, what makes me excited? Now I'm saying, if you're, now don't hear me wrong. If If you're a grandparent and you're excited about your grandkids, I am not saying that's wrong. That's great. Be excited about your grandkids. You love those grandkids and you spoil them. Do it. But if we look at our lives and there's nothing about Christ, if we look at our lives, we think the things that are spiritual and the church and those things, and that does not excite us, that ought to scare us. 
Because as we take inventory of our lives and we see what made Jesus excited and what he was passionate about that, as followers of Christ, our passions, our affections, and our love ought to line right up with Christ. And so in this war of love that we each find ourselves, what stirs up our love? Is it the things of this world that just passes away as we saw last week, or is it Christ? And has that love for Christ, has that changed our lives? Not because we do good things, because we're really, all, at the end of the day, not capable of doing that, but has our love for Christ caused us to do good things, has caused us to obey and to love? And then as believers, we're to remain in the love of Christ. And as we remain in that love, we need to discover what stirs up our love for Christ and what numbs it. And then we need to run to that which stirs up our love for Christ and then begin to eliminate what takes away from it. So as we continue on as in this journey as a faith family, we need to ask ourselves, what causes us to love? What causes us to get excited? What causes us to get mad? And examine that and line that up with Christ and His Word. Pray with me. God, thank you for your word. We thank you that it's alive and it's powerful. And God, I ask, even as we move into this time of reflection and meditation and taking inventory of our lives, I pray that you would show us what causes us to love. God, I pray if there's anyone here that is not loving you and is just loving themselves, God, that may be a a time and a thing for them to ask themselves, am I truly a believer? And God, Holy Spirit, only you can discern that for them. And I pray that you would. And Lord, I pray for those of us who are believers, God, as we take inventory in our lives, cause us to discover what stirs up our love and affection for you and help us to find out what numbs it and then to eliminate that which numbs our love for you. Jesus, we want to be passionate followers of you. and do whatever is necessary to bring us to that place. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you're in the Kansas City area, we'd love to have you be our guest. We're located at 8200 State Line Road in Leewood, Kansas. Worship services are on Sunday mornings at 1030. To learn more about us, visit our website at leewoodbaptist.com. Music